This morning we are looking at Jesus' trial, his legal Roman trial before Pontius Pilate on the day of his crucifixion. You know, all the Gospels have something to say about his trial before Pilate, but John, the Gospel of John, focuses on Jesus' passion and gives most attention of all of the Gospels to Jesus' conversation with Pilate. You might remember that last week, John almost ignores the Jewish trial of Jesus. He, as far as before the Sanhedrin and before Caiaphas, the high priest, and John chooses to focus on Jesus' appearance before Annas, who is Caiaphas's father-in-law, and as we looked at, we realized that really Annas, who he was, was pretty much the godfather of the Jewish religious system and leaders, the real man behind the throne, the power behind the Jewish rulers. And John was, in some ways, highlighting for his readers the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of the Jewish system of governing. Well, John's readers are living in Roman provinces. They're living scattered throughout the Roman Empire outside of Judea. And along with the other pressures, they dealt with the persecution that came with refusing to worship the Roman emperor. And to help them understand the power of their suffering Savior over the Roman Empire, I believe John lets them sit in on the bulk of Pilate and Jesus' conversation here. And Pilate is an extremely conflicted person. He seems to represent the person who has risen to command both political and military power and might. Yet his question of Jesus in the middle of our passage here this morning that we're looking at, his question of what is truth, it reveals that he doesn't have a moral foundation on which to lay his political and military power. You see, Pilate rose to power on the coattails of a friend and mentor named Sejanus. And Sejanus had risen through the ranks of the empire. If you want to look Sejanus up and Google him, his name is spelled S-E-J-A-N-U-S. And he's a very interesting character, and, and understanding him is to understand Pilate. He'd risen up through the ranks of the Roman Empire to where, at times, he handled most of the governing affairs of Emperor Tiberius. You see, the the aging Emperor Tiberius would go away, at times, away from Rome to climates that were better for his aging body. And during those times, Sejanus actually took care of most of his affairs. That's how high Sejanus had risen in the empire. And and he used his power to place Pilate, his friend, the one he had been mentoring, over the region of Judea, which he ruled from his palace in Caesarea. This was intentionally cruel on the part of Sejanus because he and Pilate were united in their hatred for the Jews. Philo, the historian, wrote that Sejanus had even declared it to be his goal to, quote, exterminate the nation of the Jews. This, this support by the anti-Semite Sejanus, allowed Pilate to be granted protection when his wrath would spring on those who were, he was responsible for. One example of this was when he sicked his Roman soldiers on a demonstrating group of Jews who were protesting Pilate's use of temple funds on the new aqueduct. And the ruthlessness and the vengeance of the Roman soldiers uh, struck so far as to drive much of the crowd into the temple. And as they were slaying what Jesus refers to as the Galileans, at another place in the Gospels, he, he describes the Galileans whose blood mingled with that of the sacrifices. That was when these Roman soldiers 
who had been directed by Pilate, drove the crowd even as far as into the temple, slaying people and their blood mingled with many of the sacrificial lambs and offerings that were waiting to be offered to the Lord on the temple mount. Pilate's ruthlessness with the Jews was well protected by his friend and mentor far up the chain of command. It was one of the highlights of Pilate's career when Sejanus was elevated to a coveted title. You see, it wasn't just Sejanus who would be given a new title. It was his closest supporters that were awarded the same, including Pilate, for their productivity, their loyalty, and service. Sejanus and Pilate and others were called friends of Caesar. And we'll see in this passage today how the term friends of Caesar comes to play. But for Pilate, it reflected his productivity, his loyalty and service, as noted by his friend Sejanus, who was also praised with this title. So all was well, and Pilate's cruel governing was protected under Sejanus's overreach, Let me say, I mean until Sejanus overreached. You see, Sejanus tried to unite the Roman Empire under his command and push out the elderly emperor Tiberius from power. And when Tiberius was alerted by his loyal military, Sejanus and his supporters in Rome were tried and executed in A.D. 31. Along with this, Tiberius ordered a general improvement of the treatment of the Jews. And he also required Pilate to be in Jerusalem with a full garrison of soldiers on all the major feasts. The purpose was so that not to squash Jewish uprising, but to keep it from getting out of hand so that violence would not have to be used. So here Pilate sits at Passover time, surrounded by people that he hates, in a land that he hates, with the smell of sacrifices going up almost every time he's there. And just how much power he threatens to carry is in question by the religious leaders. They were figuring out that Pilate was all bark with no bite. Under these conditions, the high priests and a large crowd bring in a tired, beaten man to him. They demand that something worse be done to him than the stoning that they could have easily arranged with this mob. But once again, we see that God's working according, he is working according to his precise plan for his glory and for our good. Once again, we see that God is in sovereign control, even this broken, beaten, God-man, Jesus, is in sovereign control even as everyone else is ironically acting as if they are. So let's start here in John 18, verse 28. And we're going to move through the passage making observations and clarifying some things that are going on there. And then I'll have two principles for us to look over together at the end. We see that, we read in verse 28, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not defile, they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. You see, according to the law, the Jews would be unclean for seven days if they entered the home of a Gentile. And tradition had reasoned for the Jews that they could enter the courtyard of the home of a Gentile as long as it didn't have a roof and they wouldn't be defiled. So according to tradition, the crowd could enter into the courtyard of Pilate but not into the dwelling. The irony here, first of many ironies that we'll see John draw out of this situation is that here on the day when Passover lambs would be slaughtered for the feast at the sixth, beginning at the sixth hour, 
The crowd is concerned about, the cel- about being able to celebrate a feast which is only a picture of what Jesus is about to do. See, they themselves are handing over the final Passover lamb to be slaughtered. And they have no idea. They're trying to keep their plans for celebrating the picture of what's actually going on right here. So Pilate assesses the situation. It says, so Pilate went outside and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. You can see that the the struggle for who's in control of this situation starts immediately. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The tension between Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders is thick right from the start. Each side is trying to appear as if they are in control of the others. The Jews had been um, allowed to exercise the death penalty in a legal way up until just a few years prior to this. And uh, either Pilate is reminding them or they are reminding Pilate, we can't do this. Uh, But certainly to have a mob be encouraged to break out in a public stoning in a way that the religious leaders could distance themselves from, this certainly was not uh, out of their modus operandi. But sadly, we see from the start that it's not God's kingdom or the truth of the matter that is sought here. The most pressing question is, who will be shown to have more power to decide the fate of the all-powerful God in human flesh? We read in verse 32 that all of this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In reality, John reminds us that their argument is playing right into God's plan for Jesus. Just as Jesus said in John 12, 32 through 33, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And we read, he said this in order to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Meaning, by crucifixion. So for the first of many times, we see Pilate scurry from outside to inside as he brings Jesus in. He brings before him this tired, unassuming man who's been beaten yet stands before him with a strange confidence. We read in verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it about you or to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? It's hard to know where Pilate gets his question about Jesus being the king of the Jews. It's not the complaint of the Jews in any of the Gospels, but Pilate's question here is brought up in Each one of the four Gospels. Are you the king of the Jews? It becomes very apparent that it's Jesus interviewing Pilate though. Rather than the other way around. His question is searching. And it needles directly at the idea that Pilate is more of a puppet at this moment. Than he wishes to admit. Actually in the other Gospels we see Jesus saying it it is as you say. But John seems to want to draw out the narrative of Jesus being in control of the situation. We continue in verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus freely admits that he is in possession of a kingdom, but it's not of one that's a threat to Pilate at this moment. And that's 
that is what Pilate is trying to assess here. Is this person a threat to him or to Rome? Is he going to have to give an account to Rome of the fact that he let this threat go? And as their discussion continues, Jesus informs Pilate of the purpose for which he came. We read in verse 37, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then we see the sad question come from Pilate. Pilate said to him, what is truth? The reality of the situation is that Jesus is not on trial. Pilate is. And Pilate is being tried on whether he is of the truth or not. In John 14, 6, we read Jesus call himself the truth, as well as the way and the life. Pilate had the truth standing right before him. Upon believing on Christ for salvation, he would drink of him and have springs of living water flow from the desert of his troubled soul. Instead, Pilate ends up asking, what is truth? What is sad is not the question. It's an important question. It's important to have answered. What's most sad about this moment is the fact that Pilate doesn't wait for an answer. He's given up on searching for that. And this is because he's given up on the idea that there is an answer to the question at all of what is truth. And having heard from the religious leaders and from Jesus, Pilate goes to address the crowd. He goes to do an opinion poll, if he will, if you will. To find out, you know, well, let's see if we can get a decision on this man from the crowd. And we see from the rest of verse 38, after he said this, after he asked this question, not waiting for an answer, he says, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now John includes, now Barabbas was a robber. By finding no guilt, Pilate is announcing that Jesus does not seem to be a threat to him or to Rome. He's not concerned about this man. At some point in this exchange, Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod, the, the, the king over Judea that had been placed in the position by Rome. And he's responsible for Galilee from where Jesus comes from. And he's also in town as well. But Jesus only comes back from Herod, beaten even more. Herod's concerned with nothing about Jesus other than maybe seeing if he can get him to do a miracle or two. But the governor has an out. He would, that it, it, this out would allow him to let the crowd do what's the right thing by their judgment instead of him having to. And Pilate references a custom that stretches prior to his being governor of Palestine. He would release one prisoner and he expected the crowd to act against the Jewish religious leaders for Jesus' sake. But Matthew tells us that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. We're also told by the other Gospels that Barabbas was held for multiple crimes besides just robbery. He was also held for insurrection and for murder. The term terrorist is one that would best suit this man that the supposed righteous are calling for his freedom. This is more of the irony of this moment of the self-righteous men who will do anything 
whatever is necessary in order to do away with the truly righteous one. So with the will of the crowd made clear, Pilate moves into the sentencing phase of this trial with the hope that he'll be able to punish Jesus for a lesser crime, though he doesn't even know what the crime is yet. We read in 19 verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. This flogging that Jesus goes through here appears to be the smaller type, which is punishment for lesser offenses. Now, I don't know about you, I wouldn't be caring too much about whether it was the lesser or not because a flogging would feel like a flogging for me. The scourging that Jesus is yet to receive was reserved for bringing a man close to death prior to crucifixion to make him die more quickly. At this point, Jesus seems to be the target of the animosity toward the Jews, of the entire garrison of Roman soldiers. The thorns from his mocking crown would have dug into Jesus' skull and cascaded blood over his face. Upon Jesus' return to Pilate in his humbled state, Pilate hopes that his punishment was sufficient. So Pilate, it says in verse 4, went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. One writer says, Pilate may have thought that the ironic spectacle of a king whose crown was thorns whose robe was a cast-off cloak and whose status was a prisoner would change their attitude. And the ESV Study Bible tells us that when Pilate says, Behold the man, it probably conveys the same sense of, Look at the poor fellow. In other words, what possible threat could this pose, this man pose to the government or to anyone else? He brings Jesus out and he's kind of mocking the religious leader saying, ooh, scary, isn't he? We read in verse 6, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. The Jews wanted crucifixion because it was the most defiling, insulting, and painful death known to man. Kostenberger writes, the preferred Roman capital punishment for non-Roman citizens, crucifixion, is one of the most cruel and torturous forms of death ever invented and inflicted in human history. Once again, we see that hatred and fear of those, the hatred and fear of those that appear to be in control, playing right into the plan of God. And the statement about Jesus claiming to be the Son of God probably lights up Pilate's superstitious fear. We read in verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement that Jesus has made himself the Son of God, when he heard this statement, he was even more afraid. It says he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? What an ironic statement from Pilate. This man is simply trying to appear like he's actually in control of the situation. If he did have this authority that he's talking about, Jesus would have been released hours earlier from this. Who's really in control of this moment? From an earthly perspective, it's the Jewish 
religious leaders in the crowd, the mob mentality. But we know that it's our Heavenly Father. And even this man that stands beaten, scorned, and silent. John's readers at times would have felt that they were surviving on the very whim of their Roman rulers. In reading this ironic statement about Pilate proclaiming this authority that he has, they would have taken comfort in the fact that confidence is no sign of power. Especially when a person is ignorant of the power of the almighty God. And Jesus says as much. In verse 11 we read, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Notice the emphasis there. You would have no authority over me at all. As Romans 13.1 tells us, there is no authority except from God. And those, those in authority that do exist, those authorities have been instituted by God. Jesus provides Pilate with an out, telling him Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders hold the greater responsibility. But notice, though, that he's not telling Pilate that his cowardice doesn't qualify as sin. Just not as great. Pilate's facade of control seems to have come completely apart in the following verses. And it almost seems as if he realizes that he's working against the sovereign Passover lamb who's intent on following through with himself being sacrificed. We see in verse 12, from then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone makes him, who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So here's Pilate's loyalty to Emperor Tiberius is being brought into full question by the Jews. Along with Sejanus, he had enjoyed the title friend of Caesar. But the question still loomed of whether he would suffer his mentor Sejanus' fate. We read in verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabatha. Gabatha means hill or elevated place. And once again, we see the irony of a fearful, posturing leader elevating himself in order to render judgment. Sitting on this throne, this bema seat, that is on a pavement that steadily rises just underneath the, the throne so that that throne is above everyone else. It's such a picture of how mortal man finds himself to be so superior to cast judgment upon his creator. We read in verse 14, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now, now he's just taunting them. Now he's just using this, getting in final digs. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And then verse 16 tells us, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now looking at a couple details here. First of all, when writers of that day would kind of mark time, describing what time it was, it was, it spoke, it was described in generality. You see, Mark says that it was about the third hour. And John says it was about the sixth hour. And it all depends on what it was that they want to emphasize about that moment. For John, in, in, in describing it leading toward the sixth hour, he's emphasizing, I believe, the fact 
of the matter that at the sixth hour would be when the lambs, the Passover lambs would begin to be sacrificed, would begin to be killed for the celebration of the Passover. He's emphasizing Jesus as our Passover lamb. And Pilate gets one more dig in ridiculing the Jewish nation by presenting this weakened, bloodied man as their king. With his loyalty to Rome in question, Pilate is simply trying to portray himself as defiant. And at the same time, the Jewish leaders make statements that deny their very national heritage of of the Jewish people as they surrender their own messianic expectations of a coming king that would rule over the whole earth right from that place, Jerusalem. John is highlighting here again that it's nearing the hour for the Passover lambs to be slaughtered at just the right moment, those who are supposedly in control have compromised into a meeting of the minds. There's a legend about the man Pilate. And I read about this in Chuck Colson's book, The Body. The legend says that there's a pool in the Alps somewhere between Italy and Switzerland. And those few who discover it find also a tall, gray-haired figure draped in a toga of imperial Rome. He kneels beside the ice-blue waters, but he will not look up. Bending low over the pool, dipping his hands into water, he rubs one hand over the other. I am innocent, he mumbles, over and over, dipping and cleansing and wringing as he has for centuries. I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Sadly, washing one's hands does not make a heart clean. Only Jesus does. Washing one's hands will not cleanse our unrighteousness before God and enable us to have a relationship with him. Only Jesus does. And God sovereignly controlled those who thought they were in control to make sure that Jesus would do this. To make sure that Jesus would be able to make the payment as our Passover lamb so that we would have the opportunity to have His righteousness on our part. Because in His death and in His resurrection, He made it possible for us to come to God and say, give me the righteousness of Christ to cover over my sin. I have sin that has separated me from you and I need Christ's righteousness on my part. Like the Passover lamb's blood over the lentil in, the, in the Egypt for the nation of Israel. We need Christ's blood over us. His righteousness covering us in order to have a relationship with God. And I'm sorry, Pilate. No amount of external washing is going to do. So as we just move into two principles here from our passage, I want to get a main idea across to you. And it's this, even when all the earthly authorities and trends are pressing against us, the ultimate evaluation of our lives comes down to whether we are aligned with the King of Kings, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Even when all the earthly authorities and trends are pressing against us. You know, both of the parties here, the Jewish leaders and Pilate representing the whole power of the nation of Rome there, both of these parties, they thought 
that they were in control at this time and they were making huge concessions in the end. Pilate ends up allowing the religious leaders to play him like a fiddle. And the Jewish leaders end up proclaiming Caesar as their only rightful king, denying their allegiance to the Messiah. By mastering the world system that they were a part of, both sides missed the king of the kingdom of God. Let me first say, those who are ignoring who Jesus is, they miss the king of kings. It's our first principle. Those who are ignoring who Jesus Christ is, they miss the king of kings. Jesus said in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Recall that Pilate Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews. And Jesus' response is that his kingdom does not have anything to do with the mob mentality that was out there. So in other words, Pilate is saying, are you their king? Are you the king of these people? And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of that. And when he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. This is much like what he said to Peter. Peter, and Peter being understanding that Jesus' kingdom was of another realm, I believe. And, and Jesus says to him, Peter, I could call down legions of angels if I wanted to be delivered from this moment. In chapter 6, the crowd was ready to seize Jesus and make him king because he provided food for them. But then by later in the chapter, many of them stopped even believing in him because his teaching made them uncomfortable. Just earlier this same week, the week of his crucifixion, the crowd is laying down their cloaks and waving palm branches. They're crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and pointing at Jesus, even the king of Israel. And on this day, they're crying, crucify him. Remember at the end of chapter 2, Jesus tells us, or John tells us, that Jesus didn't entrust himself to man. And he explains it saying he didn't need anyone to tell him what was in man's heart. And even if we, he weren't speaking of an eternal, all-encompassing kingdom, I wouldn't blame him for not wanting to take credit for being the king over any group of people. Warren Wearsby states, The world makes the wrong choice when it comes to spiritual matters. The mob preferred a murderer to the prince of life. They chose a lawbreaker over the lawgiver. And thinking about how this plays out today, for me, the Jews represent the court of public opinion. <clears throat> the fickle nature of the Jews represents what's trendy and cool. And, and you know, this is fine if we're talking about hairstyles. But it's eternally dreadful if you're talking about what people think brings them salvation or whether they need salvation. It's eternally dreadful to base what we believe about Jesus Christ or about our Creator based on what the public opinion is or based on what people think is cool or not or, or what people think you should be willing to talk about. The Jews here fit the people who are going to fill their mind with whatever's hot on Oprah's book club. They're going to rethink their sexual morality because the Today Show is praising Fifty Shades of Grey 
as a healthy book that somehow liberates women through them giving their body over without restriction to stranger. Really? That's healthy and liberates women? And it's devastatingly scarring to build your approach, for us to build our approach on our sexuality, on anything that doesn't start with what 1 Corinthians 6 tells us. That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our lives, our bodies, our minds, our eyes, they're not meant to be handed over to whatever the crowd is peddling just because it's popular. We are a part of the most powerful and the most purposeful kingdom, though unseen by man. It's an unseen kingdom. As we're told in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus back in John 3, 3, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Bottom line is, the Jewish religious leaders couldn't even see what was going on because they hadn't been born again. And that there is my question for you. Have you been born again? If not, you can't even see what it is that God has in mind, what his kingdom is doing on this earth, what he desires to do in your life. You must be born again in order to see, to be a part of, to enter into the kingdom of God. Christ's kingdom that is not of this world. His kingdom is also in a powerful, eternal kingdom. And no physical kingdom will be able to stand against Christ as it's foretold in Daniel 2. Remember Daniel 2, the statue that represents Rome and all of the kingdoms that come before it? And remember the rock that that represents Christ and how it comes rolling down, destroys the statue that represents all of the earthly kingdoms and they, they turn to dust and they're blown like chaff in the wind and it's like they never even existed. And then that rock that represents Christ in the vision, it becomes a mountain that takes up the whole earth. And Daniel 2.44 tells us, and in the days of those kings, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. That's Christ's kingdom. Well, secondly, we see that those who are ignoring who Jesus Christ is, Miss the truth of all truths. We read in verse 37 that Pilate asked him, so you are a king? And this is Jesus' answer. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Benjamin Drasali says time is precious but truth is more precious than time and if you think of it this way truth is precious just for one reason why it's more precious than time because you could spend your days living by anything but truth and it'll be a waste of your precious time 
Pilate in this account by John here, to me in this day, he represents authority that has lost touch with what, with what gives them their authority. And that being that all authority comes from God. And guess what? When government wants to say or believes that their authority does not pass down to them from God, guess who becomes God? Whoever it is that's in authority. Speaking of Pilate giving up on knowing truth, the ESV Study Bible says this, ironically, The one charged with determining the truth in the matter glibly dismisses the relevance of truth in the very presence of the one who is truth incarnate. The one charged with determining the truth in the matter glibly dismisses the relevance of truth in the very presence of the one who is truth incarnate. It's kind of like when I uh, googled the question, what is truth? And one of the the, uh, websites that I found was Philosophy Now. And it advertised that their question of the month is, what is truth? I found it ironic that those with the best answers would receive a book. And it's a book written by Mark Vernon, and it's titled, How to Be an Agnostic. Now, for those of you that are kind of sitting there thinking, ha, 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 I don't know what an agnostic is. Let's say, and, and I needed to look this up too. An agnostic is a person that believes that nothing is or can be known about God. So in, in trying to seem like they're, they're honestly kind of putting out there what is truth, the assumption here is, well, you can't really know truth about God. It's almost as if their prize was dispelling knowing whether truth is knowable about whether God exists or not. I guess if if one of the winners thought they could know truth about God, those handling this contest wanted to take care of that. Well, Dale Tackett tells us, he talks about the fact that that, that we live life inside a box. Meaning, we are finite and our world is finite. There's only so much we can know. There's only so much we can see. There's only so much we can experience. There's only one place at a time that we can be in. And in order to know anything about the infinite, the infinite God, we can't figure it out from within the box. He being outside of the box, the only one that is infinite, must speak into the box in order to let us understand who he is. This is what uh, the right, Solomon, in writing Ecclesiastes, is talking about. Only looking for what can be found inside the box is what Solomon describes as under the sun. Everything that's finite, he describes as being vain if it's only looked at under the sun, inside the box. And this is why he says in Ecclesiastes 3.16, and I think this plays into what's going on with Pilate and Jesus. Solomon writes, Moreover, I saw under the sun or inside the box. If If I was just looking from within the system, the box, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. The fact is this. We live by truth that spans culture, spans politics, spans time frame, and even spans the visible world. And no matter what we think is just a shade of gray, if we're not looking at it through the lens of truth and knowing that we are living in God's kingdom, we are moving into the bondage of our soul. Once again, we see those who wield the greatest power in their day 
in a power play over who will sacrifice the Passover lamb. And the only one that isn't fretting in our passage this morning is the lamb. That's because the ultimate Passover lamb had already told us that he is the good shepherd. And I wonder how many of you were thinking about this passage, about these words that Jesus had already spoken back in John 10, where he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Then in verse 17, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Even in this situation of those in apparent authority, whether it be the cultural of the authority of the religious leaders or the governing political authority of Pilate representing the whole Roman Empire, Jesus is saying here, no one takes my life from me. I have the authority. I alone have the authority to lay it down. And it's a promise of the fact that I have the authority to pick it up again in the resurrection. And he did just that. And praise God he did. Praise God all of Jesus' confident position here. All of his confidence in light of the pressure of Rome and the pressure of the Jewish system. The pressure of his culture. That he in fact showed his words to be true. That he had the authority to lay his life down. And he had the authority to pick it up again. Father, I do pray that you would allow us to live out of your authority, that you would allow us to live our lives on mission with you, for you, a part of your kingdom. That, Lord, when the pressure of our culture and the pressure of our leaders might press us to, to, to change what you say or what you have commanded us, I pray that we would recall and remember and trust in the fact that you have ultimate authority and that you have sacrificed ourselves, yourself for us so that we might live with you forever as a part of your kingdom. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.